Welcome to Mysterious Goings On. I'm your host, Alex Greenwood. Thanks so much for checking us out. And I'll do my usual mea culpa. Yes, I know. I have not been consistently posting. Lots of reasons. Won't go into them now. Got too many good things to cover in this episode. You know, being a writer is a lot of fun, except when it comes down to getting your drafts done and thinking they're the most magnificent thing ever cranked out. And then you ship it off to your editor and he or she gently or not so gently lets you know uh, a lot of this is uh, pretty good but most of it's crap and uh, that's probably an exaggeration to a degree but uh, when I've had that happen to me it's in retrospect been a really positive thing because the editor has often saved my bacon uh, by you know helping me uh, restrain my flights of fancy uh, and to bring the story in where it needs to be and maybe even coming up with some good ideas to help me close some loopholes and make the characters grow a little bit more. And in that vein, that's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Robert Hayes, my longtime friend, but also uh, my editor and a guy with a a very interesting take on life and uh, stories and uh, issues of the day. I think uh, I think it'd be nice if you could ju- just join me for a conversation with Robert. So, hey, Robert, how are you? Hi, Alex. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, sure. You know, we uh, just so folks who read the John Pilot mysteries know, you edited, you did Pilot's Blood. I know that. What was the other one? Was it Ghost? You did the other one? Or was it... Uh... This seems like the kind of question we should have researched before we started <laughs> no, the podcast. It's, you did Blood in Seven, I think, actually. I believe Blood in Seven is correct. Right. And the stories. Which, you know, which is, uh, interestingly, um, two of my better received books and um, do not in any small part to your contribution. So, you know, uh, here I am in front of everybody, Robert. I've known you for 30 plus years and I am thanking you and I'm recording it and telling everybody, yes, you did make my work much better. Well, I greatly appreciate that, uh, Alex. And I have to tell you that it is not possible to polish a turd. And if your work hadn't been good to begin with, I could not have made it better. So it was the inherent quality of what I started with that actually got us over the finish line. Well, hey, thanks. I, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, those books have had some critical acclaim and some small, uh, small press award uh, love so you know thank you and you're also a writer in your own uh, in your own right which we'll get to in a little bit but I thought it'd be kind of interesting if we could just real quick go back I just alluded to the fact that we've known each other for um, over three decades I'm trying to remember when I first met you I know where, where I first met you I don't remember the exact day I was probably in a drama class in high school so- it would have been in Terry Payne's drama class at Dell City High School in 1985. Oh my gosh. Oh my so gosh. 35 years, you're older than you think. And uh, <laughs> we and I don't remember the exact moment we met, but I do remember meeting you. Uh, I believe you, Scott Bartley, and Angel Tyndale were sitting cross-legged on various desks in the drama classroom on the first day of class. Right. And I thought, who are these odd people? Right. Well, and had you just come in, did, were you, was that your first year at Dell City, or were you at Dell City all three of your years? That was my first year at Dell City. Cause you, I was there as a, as a junior and as a senior. Was your dad military? 
my dad was in the Air Force. He was a tinker. Okay. And uh, and that's where we met. Right, right. And I, I just remember you you always had this. Well, just your your just keeping up with you mentally was tough for me because you were very quick witted and way more intelligent than me. There I go again. Look at this. You can see you can use this in perpetuity, my friend. Whenever you and I get into but, an argument. To balance things out, we should also reflect I'm also much better looking than and, you are. And you are. You are. You truly are. <laughs> oh, God, I wish I was, sir. I wish I was. Oh, dude, it's all smoke and mirrors for me. You know, but I remember we did we did a, a Dracula, which had that incredible set, and you were Jonathan oh, Parker. Yes. And I was Renfield. I was. I was the, the nut job eating flies, and you were the handsome uh, young. Uh, you were terrific. Lead. Oh, well, thank you. Well, so were you. Oh, uh, you were. No, I was terrible. You were terrific. <laughs> Uh, that was a that was a fun play. I really enjoyed. Doing do you that. do you remember that that Mr. Payne like went all out and broke the budget and ordered the really cool sets and everything? Yeah, I, I remember working on the sets. In fact, yeah. I think my uh, my carpentry and painting work contributed a lot more to the success of that particular play <laughs> than my acting did. Because let let me explain let me explain to your audience, Alex, that that as an actor. And as a dramatist, I am a fantastic writer. <laughs> you were not bad by any means. and you, you I know. could remember my lines, and that's the most that you could say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember Terry trying desperately to coax some emotion out of me during the various, you know, scenery chewing scenes that Jonathan Harker <laughs> is supposed to you know, carry with his profound feelings for Mina or whatever the woman's name was. was. And he, he ended up having me turn to the mantelpiece and pretend to cry because that way at least no one could see <laughs> I did remember that. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh my God, I forgot that. <laughs> it was it was years later that I remember, that I thought about this and said, wait a minute. He wasn't trying to make it. He was Son of a! <laughs> oh my God! Well, it it went well, and it went so well that when I did a student directed uh, version of a Mice and Men, I, I I brought you into that because I really wanted you in that, and you, we we all know that your portrayal of wit was the actual clearly the dramatic the focus. dramatic focus yes right. of the play of the play. <laughs> oh man, that was. I, I, Hmm? Good, good times, good times. It was such a again, good time. again for Alex's audiences who may not be familiar with Steinbeck's work. Wit is a character who exists to drop, I believe, one expository line about there being brothels in the local town that the cowboys like to go to to set up a later plot development. That's the only reason Wit exists in the entire play. Is that right? He's, he's, basically, yeah. He he has nothing to. He is a nothing. He is a zero character. <laughs> well, it, it, you did you did a lot with that, and it it was a good show. In fact, that that show got me uh, an, a full ride theater scholarship offer from a small school, um, which I did, which I declined because even then realized, my God, I'm okay as an actor, but I don't want to make a living at it or try to. This is too hard. You know, I wouldn't want to do that. So, um, yeah, make it do something easier, like try to write or something. But well, so we met there and we kept in touch. You went on to was it Oberlin? Is that where you matriculated? I went to, to college in Oberlin. I didn't graduate there. I did uh, two years before the siren call of 
uh, a woman who was having sex with me pulled me away. And uh, I went to Washington, D.C., where we worked as, uh, as office temporaries for a time, which was actually an enjoyable and informative way to make a living back then. I don't know if it is now. And, uh, and from there, I went, uh, stayed in Washington for a few years, did increasingly responsible work. Then we ended up moving to Washington State, and where I attempted a different college, Evergreen State College. Evergreen, wow, yeah. Make a go of it there, because um, Evergreen is a, the kind of school where a motivated and self-disciplined person can get a tremendous education. Uh, and they market it to hippies, who, broadly speaking, don't tend to be highly motivated and self-disciplined people. Yeah. Um, so I pretty much just screwed off the entire time. That's really when I started doing creative work and writing work as a way of making a living. Uh, I ended up going back, uh, well, long story short, I ended up in Washington State for about, uh, gosh, 12 years or so. I uh, worked at Microsoft for a while, became a computer programmer, then got tired of that and decided for sure writing was my, my calling and my path, and I moved to Colorado, and I've been here ever since. It's interesting to me, and you know, uh, because sometimes you and I will butt heads about political things because you're 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 much more conservative than I am. But you went to a couple of really liberal schools. Um, well, it's it's fair to say that I'm conservative in some senses. Um, I'm also a very liberal person in many other senses. Uh, I would say that. I use the word libertarian, and I definitively do not mean the political party, which is mainly populated by gentlemen with very large belt buckles, large gun collections, and an inordinate fondness for the gold standard. And I don't have any of those things. Uh, but I believe in... Well, I'm, I'm reaching the age of cynicism, which, considering that I was born... My father is fond of saying that I was born 40 years old. Oh, that, I, be, I believe that. In terms of my, you know, jaundiced view of human nature and the world. Uh, but I believe in human freedom. I believe in individual rights and individual freedom. Um, which causes me to end up butting heads with a lot of people politically. Because almost everyone wants to tell other people what to do in at least some areas of life. Mm -hmm. It's a... And, and I do, too. I, I fall victim to the exact same uh, temptation. It's the power fallacy. It's the, the, the belief that we can get other people to do things that they don't want to do. And, and you can, to a degree. I mean, you can incentivize behavior with money. You can incentivize behavior with the threat of punishment. You can hold a gun to somebody's head and say, do this or I'll shoot you. And you know, that works pretty well at least over the short run. Um, but I am much more attracted to solutions to problems that involve letting people do what they want to do and trying to mitigate the negative consequences from that rather than trying to control things and create systems where people have to do what they're supposed to do. You clearly don't believe that uh, uh, you can control human behavior. There is a... Uh, a, a saying that was, I believe, first 
formulated in the Harvard Psychology Department uh, Office of, of Human Behavioral Research. And it says, and I quote, human beings under carefully controlled laboratory conditions will do as they damn well please. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting that... The, and I, I, I never really get mad like I used to with you about about arguments. It's just to me, life's too short. I'm getting to the I'm getting to the age where it's like you know, yeah, I can't fix everything, and I and I don't necessarily want to impose my will, believe it or not, on other people. I, I do have very very real beliefs and thoughts about how I think things should go and how things things should run and how people should be treated, but uh, I, I I must confess that I I often. It's so funny how how insidious you can be about this kind of thing because I will spout off an opinion usually on social media or something and you will come in with your surgical precision and take it apart. And the thing that I have to congratulate you on though is you you are you know I'm coming in on on, on my hot rod let's say of, of idealism or whatever and you mm-hmm. you know and by the time you're done with it it's in pieces on you know on the ground but I'm I'm not really mad that my hot rod doesn't drive anymore. You know what I mean? It's like you do it in a way. It's like, no, see, if you think about it, you know, you don't say if you think about it, but you have a way of zeroing in on the thing. And rhetorically, um, not saying no, I'm full of shit, but just saying, OK, but I appreciate where you're coming from. But your hot rod is is ridiculous. And I'm going to take it apart for you now. And here, have a fender. Take that home. That's how you do it. It's uh, let's let's put it this way. I used to be a thousand times more of an asshole than I am now. A thousand is a good round number. Mm-hmm. Over the course of many years, I've made some progress on my own issues. So, for example, when we were fifteen years old, if we had a political disagreement, I wouldn't be probably coming at you from a point of view of us having a political disagreement, I would be expressing my resentment over something that had happened in an unrelated context Hmm. or my feeling of inadequacy compared to you in some area that might, you know, be tangentially connected to what we're talking about, but not really. Right. I won't say that I'm over that, but I'm no longer 15 years old. (laughs) And, and I've, I've gained the, the, I've gained the normal amount of insight that a, if someone isn't a complete moron, they pick up over time, you know, a few insights as life goes on, as they hit the same brick wall over and over and over again. Eventually, a connection is formed in their brain of if you see something big and red looming up, perhaps you should put on the brakes and not accelerate. Right. Perhaps not charge into the wall. Perhaps look for a door. Right. Well, and it's. I've learned that much. You have. And, and I just wish. Uh, in a macro sense, the, the nation could be more like that. Um, oh, yes, because all we need is for the world to be more like me. Oh, well, God, we certainly need people to, to be more thoughtful and to be uh, more respectful of each other's opinions. Whether whether you're muttering under your breath, you know, Greenwood's such an idiot, you know, while you're typing a, a nice response, the point is you're not saying to my face, or so to speak, you're an idiot. You know what I mean? Whereas now... We have a Facebook for that. Well, there probably is. It's, it's called the Greenwood Idiot Group. We block you from it so you don't see it, but 
Every time you see something dumb, we go over there and we, we laugh. Oh, my gosh. Well, and it's a good thing I write books so you can just have them all in print as well. You can just cross-index right. all that crap. Yeah. We, we do a chapter of the day club sometimes. You know, we, let, we make fun of some. No, I'm not being serious. No, it's, but... it's helped a lot that I've had many friends and many people who were very important to be emotional, very close relationships, where the people have had just hugely different ways of looking at the world. And when you have that kind of interaction in your social network, you have to learn how to deal with, well, you know, this person believes this radically different thing than I believe. They, But I love them, and they love me. So either we throw away love, and God help us, there's not enough love in the world that we can afford to throw it away. Right. Or we learn to respect one another and try to figure out, oh, you know, maybe they think that way because they've had different experiences than I've had. Maybe they think that way because they know something that I don't know. Maybe we can reach an accommodation or an understanding rather than a, you know, you're a fascist, you're a libtard, you're a, right. you know, name-calling battle. Yeah, that, which would just be lovely right about now with everything. Um, well, kind of moving forward, so you, you, you uh, settled where you settled and you started uh, your company. And uh, can you give, give us a little thumbnail about that. What kind of work did you do, Type types of clients, that sort of thing? Gosh. Uh, in the beginning, in the beginning, I got a writing job for a, a marketing guy who was doing an asbestos-related project. And when I was... Working in those temp jobs in Washington, D.C., one of the temp jobs I had was at an occupational medicine firm called uh, Chase & Associates, where they did asbestos um, screenings, mesothelioma screenings, for, for occupational health workers, or for, uh, for occupational health medical, uh, an occupational health medical firm. There we go. And so I learned in the process of in that job, I learned a bunch about asbestos and a bunch about mesothelioma because that doctor, Dr. Chase, wrote a monograph about asbestos and I typed it up. I was the typist. Well, when you type something, you tend to read it. Mm -hmm. So I read this you know, 200-page monograph about asbestos and mesothelioma and how it all connects together and the history of it and all these things that have happened. And he edited it. And this was a major project for him. So I essentially, I didn't co-write it in any sense. You know, I contributed nothing other than you know, the typing and some grammatical changes. But I ended up learning all of this stuff about asbestos and mesothelioma. So this guy comes along and he wants thousands of articles written about, surprise, asbestos and mesothelioma for law firms who want to attract customers who have been victimized by the asbestos industry. And, well, here I am with this you know, amazing knowledge base that no one else has because very few people have typed up monographs about asbestos and mesothelioma. So I take the job for him, and I made, I don't know, probably $100,000 over a two-year period writing articles for this guy. And we ended up writing a book. So that's where it started. That was the first client I had and the first actual writing job I did. Uh, and from there, that led me by word of mouth to just doing all kinds of stuff. Um, articles for auto parts places, um, 
small businesses doing their websites, just just all kinds of freelance. Pay me a dollar and I'll write you some words. Kind of transactions. And you now, when you started working a little bit on my side of the street with with the writing, you know, with with was I one of your first fiction clients uh, for a novel, or did you have others? Or we, we had done a couple of fiction. Fiction is a lot harder than nonfiction because, generally speaking, people who are doing nonfiction projects they know what they're doing. Yeah, they might not be great writers, but they know what they're talking about. You know. The, the asbestos guy knew what he was talking about. He wasn't a great writer, but he, he understood how things work. So it, fiction, and I say this with love towards all my clients, 90% of the people trying to write fiction are terrible. They're, they're just frankly terrible. And there's nothing that you can do for them because the problem is they're not literate. They don't have the ability to write a story. And I... I Hopefully that this will not come back to bite me in the ass as all my you know fiction clients say what and, and fire me. <laughs> but I can't work for those people anyway. I, but they make the marketplace very crowded with frankly garbage. Oh yeah. Your book was terrific. You know, when you get that ten percent, the ten person who actually can write, and they just you know need a little help with their 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 pacing or they're a little too close to the story. Yeah. Or. As in the case of you, I would say they're a perfectly good writer, but they're aware, hey, if I have somebody else take a look at this and make a contribution to it, it will be better than it was when I created it. It will go from good to great or from great to super great. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, you know, I think Stephen King said that uh, uh, if you're, you can't really teach people how to write. If, if, if you're, you, know, you can go to school and you can do things, he says, and if, if you're average, you might be able to get to be good. And he says, if you're good... Eh, you'll probably never be anything more than good. That, that's kind of where I feel like I am because I know I know I'm not great, but I know I'm good, good enough to hold people's attention. And but I gotta confess, seriously, when when I first asked you to do my book, mm-hmm. I was nervous as hell because you are not a guy to mince words, and you you know you'll spare my feelings a little bit. But I know you. If it had been total garbage, right. I think you would have been like, I think you would have said something like, "Hey, you know what? I am really slammed," or. I don't. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know how you would have said it. What if you'd gotten that manuscript and thought, eh, old buddy, but still, what would you have said if it was not something you wanted to work on? Just no? Or? Honestly, I would have told you what I would tell any client. I would have said, <clears throat> well, in your case, I'm having a hard time envisioning because your, your work was good. So. Oh, well, thank you. And, and actually, I think you sent me a chapter first. Right, you didn't just send me the book. You sent me like a, a chapter because I wanted to see. I w- you were asking for a quote, and so I needed to see. Well, is this going to be a six hours per page thing where I'm totally rewriting his book, or is this going to be you know five minutes per page because it's already great and I just have to fix a couple of typos? Polish it up. Um, and you sent me a chapter, and the chapter was good. I was like, okay, great, and I was relieved because I didn't want to have that conversation of, buddy, as a writer, you're a great <laughs> PR guy. <laughs> well, you know. It, you were up there with my gra- my late grandfather, who you know you you have some familiarity with him as well. Now uh, you didn't know him, but who wrote for fifty years, and you know um, there was when a writer tells you when you're young and impressionable, you can write. You, you know, and even if it's your grandfather, who you know he was enough. Of, 
He was enough right. of a pro that he would not have said to me, oh, yeah, he would have been encouraging, but he certainly wouldn't. I just never forget the time he, he read something of mine and he said, yeah, you, you got it. You can do it. And I mean, that's all he said. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it, it wasn't like, here's your crown, Prince Valiant, put this on. It was just, hey, yeah, you can do this. So keep working on it. That was the beginning. I think if he had just been kind of like avoiding me about it or not said anything positive or just said, well, there's, you know, you know what I mean? Did some grandfatherly thing or worse. Hey, let's get some ice cream. Yeah. Or worse came around and was completely, you know, put, you know, too much, putting too much uh, syrup mm-hmm. on the pancake. I, I would have known that too. So, so when you came back and were like, yeah, I think we can do business. This looks fine. And uh, I was tremendously relieved and glad because the notes you gave me. Uh, for Pilot's Blood um, were were really exceptional. And you also did such uh, excellent work with Pilot 7 on those short stories. And I believe I give you some credit in the acknowledgments for Pilot's Rose. You didn't edit that one, which we'll get into in a minute, but you had given me the germ of an idea because I was kind of blocked. I hate writer's block. As a t- I just feel like you're just lazy if you have writer's block usually. But I was having a hard time getting the first bite of the apple going and you came back and go, well, what if pilot comes back and you know, the cop who he was kind of messing with and pilot's key is kidnapped or something. And he's got to figure out what happened there. And I was like, Holy yeah. shit, that's it. <laughs> well, that's what an editor is for in a lot of ways. You are an extremely easy person to work with as a, as a writer. Um, so many people get a, I don't want to say an unhealthy emotional attachment to their work because you have to be attached to your work. You have to care. But some people get so besotted with their, their work that, you know, no one thinks their baby is ugly. Yeah. You know, no matter how ugly your kid is, you think your kid is great looking. Right. But there are some parents who take, you know, their child who frankly looks like Winston Churchill <laughs> and a turd were merged genetically. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they think this kid is going to win beauty pageants. And you're like, you know, I hate to break this to you, man, but you know that's the hormones talking. Your your kid is ugly, and they're not going to be the next uh, William Shatner. They're they're not going to be this gorgeous hunk of sex machine ever because they're ugly. And a lot of writers, they'll create something and they just love it so much, they cherish it and they hug it to their bosom, and it's wonderful. And if you say, I think that this. A here should actually be Anne. They scream at you because you don't understand the majesty of the choices they've made. Oh. You have none of that. You have zero of that. I mean, you, you like your work. You care about your work. And you, the thing that... The incident that occurred that made me know that I would be able to work with you and I could do I could edit anything you ever write and be able to get along just fine was when... You had Pilot getting into a fight in a bathroom, and I used a phrase that you weren't familiar with uh, in my editing. And I said, and you wrote back and you said, "I don't get this. Why, why is he saying this?" You didn't go off on, "Oh, this is stupid and done." You asked a question. You're like, I don't understand this. Why did you change this to be what it is? And I explained to you, and you're like, "Oh, okay." But then the way you would ask the question made me realize that actually my change wasn't a good change. We changed it back. <laughs> I don't, I don't really remember that, but okay. It was the sketchy toilet incident. Oh, the sketchy toilet. Yeah, what is the a sketchy, sketchy toilet? To- I didn't know what a sketchy toilet was. I was like, okay. Well, t- in Europe, 
a lot of the time, not a lot of the time, but it's a European English affectation of I've I've had a toilet, I've gone to the bathroom and taken care of things. And it came across, so a sketchy toilet is I've quickly run into the bathroom and washed up, which was the exact gist we were trying to get across. The pilot quickly washed his hands and face to get out of the bathroom where he'd beaten the guy up and he left. And you read it as, you know, he went into the sketchy bathroom, the, the dirty. Right. And, and it was a very lot, like, you know what? You, it is ambiguous. It does say this also, and that's not good. When the writer can argue with the editor, and you didn't really argue, you just said, I don't get this. It's, uh, it tells a great deal about the fact that you have perspective. Perspective is super important. Well, I'll, the way I see it, and I, I really appreciate this insight from you because I hope my fellow writers listening have this kind of relationship with their editor. You can only make my work better. Um, and uh, I, I don't want to jump too far ahead. We're kind of kind of fairly linear in our discussion here. I'm kind of talking about your life a little bit, but I want, I want to make sure we kind of stick to that a little bit. But you, you're, you're working with me now. Uh, well, actually, most of your work's completed on it um, with... Uh, uh, a lost manuscript of my grandfather's, my late grandfather's. And yes. you, and I'm going to have to have you back after that book's released because I want to talk more about just that with you. But you um, actually kind of set me straight on some stuff because I felt, see my grandfather, as you know, uh, Robert, but to the listeners, he published, he was published by Avon and Ballantyne uh, and Dell and some of these big publishers for 50 years off and on. About thirty something books and a lot of magazines and pulps and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So he always had a professional editor. Well, I'd never seen any of his work with Sans editor, right? So he left me when he passed away a manuscript for his last novel, which he wrote about ten years or so before he died. And I read it as, oh, okay, it's not bad by any means, and we're going to put this out. I'm going to kind of polish it up, and I'm going to give it to edit Robert to edit, but. I even said to you, I fear he was a bit on the decline with this one because you looked at it and were like, oh, God, he's so expository in his dialogue and all. And, and when I read it, I was cringing a little. And then, but then you said to me, he's just lining out facts. He's probably counting on his editor to come back to him to polish up the dialogue and punch it up and, and have another pass. And that's something he never got to with this book. Isn't that about what you said? Something like that? Yeah, it was my opinion that... Um he was putting his research into the first draft so that he wouldn't have to have a big stack of notes. You know, you write a book and you've got a big stack of notes of all the things you've researched and then you start typing your manuscript, but then he didn't want to have to keep going back and forth. So he was just putting all this data into the text of the story as he went. Mr. Johnson, who worked for the railroad, which had in 1834 <laughs> been founded between the cities of Lima and Akron. Oh, that was driving Not me crazy. to the young woman who worked for the newspaper, which had been founded in 1874 by a man named Johnson. You went on, 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 on. Yeah, because it was horrible. It was horrible, and all these—I mean, these—it's like these characters were like. It was like a like bad theater back in the 1700s, you know, when they would just kind of spread their right. their 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 legs and and put their hands on their hips and 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 announce these expository things and proclaim, yes, and, and proclaim everything, yeah, and. And I, I, I just, I put, and see, you saw it after, only after I punched up a lot of it, but then I, but, but I told you beginning of this project, I'm not in the business of going in there and changing too much because this is his work and, right. you know, and I had to recreate a first chapter that 
uh, got lost, and you gave me some great notes on that too. So I think what, what to get back to what you're the thrust of what you're saying though is that a lot of writers, uh, particularly insecure writers, and and that's what that's what I think this is that we're getting at here is insecurity when the when the writers jump you about legitimate editorial questions and suggestions. I I've edited some work for some people. I'm not a great editor. I'm okay because I used to be in newspapers and I can edit copy and I can also, you know, I can tell a story so I can, I can give advice. But a lot of, I stopped giving advice to my fellow writers um, a long time ago, unless they specifically, I have this great relationship with another writer, Jason McIntyre, where we can look at each other's work and not get into this, you know, turf battle, pissing match kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. But most writers I work with otherwise who, who ask me to look at their stuff, it's just what you talk about. They're so uh, protective of their baby, ugly or not, that it's yeah. just like, you're not listening to me anyway. Why, why am I bothering to do this for you? If all you want me to do is tell you, oh my God, you're brilliant. Well, I mean, I guess I could, but I don't think you're, it's, it's wasting my time and not doing you any favors. Right. Writers have a structural problem, which is that writing by its nature is a solitary business. You, there are no group writers. There are no uh, – well, that's not entirely true. Comedy shows on TV have groups, and, and that actually works pretty well. The writers but room. Narratives, yeah. Yeah. But narratives, a storytelling thing, generally speaking, has to be done in a solitary fashion. Even, even writers who work together usually end up panning off the thread. You write a chapter, I write a chapter. You write a chapter, I write a chapter. Because for writing, you go sit down in a room with the door closed – and no distractions, and you you and the keyboard have an essentially masturbatory relationship where you're all by yourself and you create something. And that's just the nature of the beast. The problem with that is that since you don't have to work with anyone, you never are forced to develop those social skills that people in other lines of work have to develop. You know, you can't do that and be a chef. You can't go into the kitchen alone and create greatness and ignore all the people around. It won't work. Other people have to work with you. You have to have a collaborative process. So you have to build collaborative skills. Pretty much every job on earth has to build collaborative skills or it just doesn't work. Writers pretty much don't have to do that. You can be a great writer while being an absolute garbage fire of a human being. (laughs) Harlan Ellison. Oh. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think he was a dumpster Too soon? fire. No he, no, no, he wasn't a dumpster fire of a human being, but he was extremely difficult. Human oh, being. my God, he was, yeah. And if he had been a the manager of an office depot, then at the age of 25, he would have learned how to not be such a, a difficult human being because he would have had to. Right. But as a writer, he didn't have to. And we're human beings are lazy. What do we do? We do the things that we have to do. Yeah. Do we do anything more than that? Maybe uh, Jesus did, but but most people don't. It's the path of least resistance. Everybody takes that, right? And and behavior. at most, at most, you'll see someone who's really motivated and really wise will you know go out of their way to try to be a little bit less of a piece of garbage. And that's that's you see that and you're like, wow, what a great guy. <laughs> he only robbed those people. He didn't rob, sodomize, and murder them. <laughs> he really stepped up. Oh, so you're writing and editing, you're running your business, you're doing well. Well, for a certain value of doing well. Yeah. And so what, you know, what, what goes on next? What happens? 
Well, I got married. Big mistake. <laughs> I, uh, I'm delighted to have the daughter that I have. She's a wonderful person, so I would not change anything. But I should not have gotten married. I was not ready for marriage. And I very badly treated the woman that I was with, which is a pattern in my life. Uh, and I ended up running into some financial trouble, as you know. Mm-hmm. And I made... I used to say I made the stupidest decision of my life, but I've subsequently made worse ones, so I'm not really sure where it stands in the rankings as of now. But as of then, it was the stupidest decision I made in my life. Um, we ran into some trouble, and we were in danger of losing the house. We are going to be foreclosed on. And instead of asking for help, I decided in my impeccably brilliant way that robbing a bank would be the solution to the problem. Get the money that I needed to pay back the house and get out of this little hole that we had dug. Um, I won't go into the complexities of why we were in the hole. I'll say that it was largely my fault. Uh, Other people had some contribution, but it was largely my fault. So I went up to Denver. I did did a lot of research, actually. And actually, to, to give you some context, probably the year before this had happened, we had been in in financial trouble and we'd gone in and out of financial trouble. And a lot of that was the nature of the freelance uh, lifestyle. Um, Sometimes you've got great clients and you're making all kinds of money. And sometimes there's just not, you know, the door, the doorbell is not ringing. The phone is not ringing. The email inbox is a desolate wasteland with tumbleweeds rolling by. And, uh, so we kept going back and forth. We'd, we'd be up a little bit, and then we'd be down. We'd be up, we'd be down. And we were down for a while, and as I said, we were going to lose the house. going to go into foreclosure. So over the course of this year, you know, while feeling desperate about a lot of things, I had started doing research on, you know, how can I make several thousand dollars quickly without, without doing any work? And... Well, it looked like robbing a bank was a great idea. Huh. A lot of people get away with it. It's easy. And it's quick. And you get cash. It's not like stealing a car where you then have to go find someone to buy the car. You've actually stolen the thing that you needed. It's, it's right. very direct. John Dillinger was once asked, why do you rob banks? That's where the money is. That's where the money is, yes. It, it makes it very simple. You know? Can I stop you for a second? So your research indicated that people got away with it. Well, the overall clearance rate for bank robberies is about 80%. Are you what serious? Clearance rate, what cl- clearance rate means someone is caught and convicted. So, for example, homicides, the clearance rate is in the 90% range. Generally speaking, if someone gets murdered, they find out who did it, and that person gets caught, and that person goes to jail. Generally speaking, you know, there's there's some exceptions, but it's a very serious crime. They take it very seriously. They put the resources in. They catch the person. Shoplifting has a clearance rate of you know probably two percent. For the most part, you can get away with shoplifting all day long. Had I been rational, I would have shoplifted a hundred times and you know paid the mortgage that way. If I had to do it, it'd be a crime. Uh, but bank robbery, the initial rate is something like fifty percent. 
And over time, more people get caught because they usually because they do multiple robberies and an MO gets established and they start seeing a pattern. They know where to look. Um, but very few people, not very few, but it's it's a crime where you can get several thousand dollars and you've got a reasonable chance of walking out of the bank and not being caught and actually even getting away with it. Uh, as, of course, you already know the answer, the end of this story. Uh, I didn't end up getting away with it. I got caught. Now, can can I just stipulate here? And you, you didn't threaten to hurt anybody. Oh no, no. Part of the research I did. Well, I'm an, I'm a, a relatively nonviolent person to begin with. Right. Um, <clears throat> when I was doing my research, I discovered that generally speaking, banks are. Tr- train their tellers to cooperate with robbers, to give them what they ask for, to not put up any resistance, to not do anything that would require you to threaten them with a weapon. In fact, using a weapon in a robbery in most places more or less doubles the severity of your penalty if you are caught, while not getting you any extra money. So there's no point in taking a gun on a bank robbery. If you're, if you're doing what's called a note robbery or a, 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 a drawer robbery where you're going up to a teller and saying, give me the money, taking the money and running away, having a gun is not going to increase your chances of success at all, but it does greatly increase the penalty if you are caught. So there's no point in doing it. So as a rational person, I didn't take any kind of weapon. The first robbery I did, I went in to the Great Western Bank on... 16th Street, no, on 18th Street in Denver. And I walked up and I handed them a note. And the note said something along the lines of, give me all your money, please. And they gave me the money and I ran away. Uh, I robbed another bank about four days later because I didn't have quite enough to pay the mortgage payment. Again, that was the reason for the, the robbery in the first place was catching up on the mortgage. So I did essentially the same thing there. I think I, I wrote the note on an envelope um, and told them to put the money in the envelope so that I would then have the the note with me. I wouldn't be leaving behind physical evidence. See, kids, as you practice things, you get better at them. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, then about, I thought I'd gotten away with it, to tell you the truth. Because uh, I got away. I left. Went back to Colorado Springs, took the money to my bank, deposited it, wrote a check to the mortgage company, sent the check off, and you know hung up my hat as a bank robber, thinking I had successfully weathered the crisis. Then about, I would say it was about a month later, maybe maybe two months, uh, there was a knock on the door, and a Denver County. Uh, or a Denver city of Denver police detective and an FBI agent were standing on my front porch. Oh boy! And of course, my heart sank. And I went outside, and they said, "Mr. Hayes, you know, we think that you robbed this bank in Denver. Two of them, actually." And I said, "That's crazy talk. What are you talking about? <sighs> <laughs> that's that's insane." <laughs> now I should say, at the time, I was married, and I had a very distinctive wedding band a large titanium oh jeez that I wore all the time one of the things I'd forgotten to do I, I really messed up the first robbery one of the things I forgot to do was take off the wedding 
I, I went to another city to do the robbery on the assumption that this would help me get away with it, you know, that they would be looking in the wrong place. I'm 60 miles, you know, from my home. But then when you wear something that's distinctive, that, it, well, that kids listening at home, that messes up the plan. So you don't do that. Oh, my God. So, so he shows me a picture. He says, here's a picture of, uh, of you, you know, at the teller's office. And he hands me this folder. And on the front of the folder is this picture of my hand, close up of my hand with the wedding band. And I'm holding my hand with the same wedding band on this picture. So literally, <laughs> we're looking at the two. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but that's cool. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny. And so I, I see this, and I kind of move my hand under the folder. And he looks at me and says, Mr. Hayes, I already saw the wedding I already, <laughs> I already told that it's you. You know, you're, you're not going to be able to trick me here that I know that it's you. The FBI agent, in the meantime, is saying nothing. He's just he's there for the ride. He's The FBI has a jurisdiction over all bank robberies. Because it's a federal. Right. Is a federal crime. Usually, they kick it back to the state unless you are John Dellinger. Oh, I didn't know they did that. Yeah, they do. The states generally do the prosecutions because the FBI's—they're busy. Oh. Uh, so, I ended up saying, "Well, no, it wasn't me. Are, are you here to arrest me?" He's like, "No, we're still collecting evidence, but we'll, we'll probably come back in a week or so." And Jeez, really? Okay. So I went back inside and had the wonderful conversation with my wife, explaining what had happened. Uh, she was super, super excited and pleased. Kids listening at home, that's the most sarcastic thing that has ever been said on the planet Earth. Man. Uh, she was very unhappy. And uh, about a week later, they did come back and arrested me. And I bailed out. Uh, I spent the next six months or so going through the court process. Uh, ended up divor- getting divorced. My wife left me. Oh. So we ended up losing the house anyway. Here's where I will have my first and only criticism of the justice of what happened to me. And that is that I got a sentence of three months in county jail. And I got that because I had probably the best defense lawyer in the state of Colorado, an absolute genius of an attorney. And also it was a first offense and I was middle-aged and they knew that I had done it for the mortgage, you know, so it wasn't me stealing money to go buy drugs with it. It was a man trying to save his house. Blah, and you blah, didn't, blah. you didn't threaten anybody. Didn't threaten anybody. So I ended up doing a three month sentence of which I only did two months. Wow. And most of that two months I actually did on work release. I gotta so, be honest. When, when I heard you were out, I was flabbergasted. Yeah. And, and I criticized this in that, Maybe if I had gotten a real sentence the first time, I can't believe I'm going to have to say these words. Maybe if I would gotten a real sentence the first time, I wouldn't have done it again later. Uh, uh, is right. So right. But I didn't. I got a very light sentence and thought, oh, I got away with it, essentially. Because in, in essence, I did get away with it. I did two months in county jail, most of which I spent doing work release. So literally, I would leave jail in the morning, go to my office, work all day, and then go back at night to go to bed. So as you know, this is about as close to nothing as, as you can get. In fact, my lawyer did tell me if the teller at one of the banks had not complained about the leniency in the process, I probably wouldn't have done any jail time at all. 
my lawyer had successfully gotten the DA to agree to uh, a deferred prosecution, meaning that they they don't prosecute unless I do something bad again. I essentially go on probation. Yeah, reoffend, right? Reoffend. Uh, but the teller was very unhappy, and I can't blame her at all uh, at that proposed settlement and, and raised a stink. And so they had to give me some jail time. So they gave me very little. And then I was on probation for two years. And I spent, essentially spent those two years getting, getting away with stuff, lying to my probation officer, starting to use drugs, oh. running around with women of ill repute. This is post-divorce. And just in general, screwing up. And at the end of that two-year period, where I pretty much just spiraled down the whole time, I ended up robbing another bank. Uh, this time it was to buy drugs. And I did four, I got a four-year sentence that time. Whew. Yep. Can I, is it it's safe to assume... Okay, I would think I would think this. The first time was desperation. The second time, yeah. you, you just did, were not clear-headed at all. The first time was desperation plus stupidity. The second time was... Yeah, I wasn't clear-headed. I mean, I don't want to say that in a way of... of uh, Make an excuse or anything. Not responsibility or making an excuse, no. But yeah, I was I was in a very bad place, and I, and I seriously missed it. Well, and this is one of the ironies of this, and as your friend, I think if I chuckle a little here at this point I'm getting ready to make, you won't be mad at me because we go way back. But in between these two things, you wrote a book called Stay Out of Prison. A practical guide for avoiding incarceration. Available at Amazon.com yes. for a very reasonable price. I mean, you you got to get the Corey Aransky, and you two wrote this book, and I've read it, and I've reviewed it. It's a wonderful book, and it's so smart. Thank and you. It, it's, and it's, if only I had read it. I was going to say, dude, you know, you talked earlier. If you if I typed all these pages about mesothelioma, then I learned all this stuff. Well, did you type any of that? I'm sorry. I had to do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, you know what? You know what? Hold on, because I actually didn't type it. Oh. That must be what happened. You know, the book... Because I, I wrote the book when I was in prison. Right. And I didn't have a typewriter at the time. I was sending handwritten drafts out to Corey, and she typed it up. So Corey knows all the things about how not to go to prison, but I don't actually know them because I didn't type them out. Well, there that must explain. But, you know, this that book, explains. it came out in 2015, and it is on Amazon.com, and we'll put a link in the show notes. This is a great book, whether... You're just fascinated with the criminal justice system, as I am, um, or, or Robert's story, which um, is interesting too. Um, but it's this wonderful tome about, and it's it's so it's written the way Robert talks, and it's very no nonsense and very intelligent. And uh, I, you know, his, you say in the book, you know, my purpose is not to help you commit a crime and get away with it. My purpose is to help you stay out of prison. And then you're like, prison sucks. This is or should be intuitively obvious, but while very few people think, yay, prison, free food, free rent, sounds great, even fewer people understand the real reasons why prison is so awful. So, you you know, you talk about and you go in depth about how the psychological adjustments necessary to survive in prison can warp you if you're in there long enough and make it where you're, I guess, effectively it, institutionalized and can't make it out in the real world. Is yes. that what you're getting at? Yes, it's it's hardly a, an original point to me, but it is extremely true 
the the mentality human beings do what we have to do to survive right if i put you in a situation where you have to be a a sniveling coward to survive and then i take you out of that situation you're going to be a sniveling coward going forward until new conditions you know require you to change but human beings also are limited in the flexibility we have you know you can learn a way of life and if you have to change it usually you can but if you keep having to change or what's worse if you have to keep flipping back and forth a lot of people simply don't have the the resources the internal resources spiritual mental moral whatever you want to call them to do that I uh, I just looked up online a friend of mine from one of the prisons I was at and he had gotten out before I got out and I saw that he just picked up a new 10-year sentence and I was I was kind of stunned I went I looked on his Facebook page and he'd been doing terrific on the outside he'd gotten his job back he'd gotten his business back he was making money he looked healthy he had pictures of him happy and healthy with his new car he was doing really well and then he apparently went and decided to do a new crime and picked up a 10-year sentence and he's 58 so that's getting close to life sentence yeah and the more you go back the longer your sentences run you know the first time you're going to go for a few months even if you get a, a year or two sentence you'll probably be out in a few months the second time you're going to do some of your time and as as you keep racking those up you get less and less love from the system not you know, not incomprehensibly. When you're on there on your ninth go around, they figure, well, maybe we should just you know keep him here for the whole time. Yeah, he's he's not getting any better. So he, is he, is he in your opinion just been infantilized by the system and he just needs to get back into it? Does he have a subconscious need to do that, is, or are you not going to go that deep with him? I can't say that specifically for him because I didn't know him that well. But there are a lot of people for whom that is absolutely the case, and that is absolutely what happens. It's kind of like, uh, was it uh, Crooks or whatever his name was in uh, Shawshank that uh, uh, James Whitmore pl- portrayed, the older man, and he, I forget if that was his name, Brooks, or it was Brooks, wasn't it? And he, he didn't, they let him out when he was an old man, but he'd spent his whole life in prison, and he didn't want to go, so he killed himself. Right. Uh, well, right. Yeah. Suicide is less common. What they usually do is they just get out and they do another crime, just to get back in. Um, I've got I got to tell you this. This is this one. This one really hurts my heart. Uh, one of my roommates, where I'm living right now, mm-hmm. halfway up, young man named uh, Clarence. When Clarence was 19, uh, he had just finished community college. And he apparently decided to go rob somebody, and he did an aggravated robbery. He held a man up in an apartment complex and took his wallet and his phone. And then he walked over to the local 7-Eleven and was buying cigarettes. That's where the police arrested him. So, you know, standard genius level criminal behavior. Right. He got a a 12-year sentence. He did six of it, which is pretty typical. Uh, He got out to the halfway house at the age of 25. And he started messing up the halfway house left and right, left and right, left and right, just catching write-ups, doing the wrong things, coming back drunk from the facility, from you know going out on job search. And uh, he, he was on the verge of being sent back. They, were, they told him, hey, if you mess up again, if you do another significant 
screw up, we're going to send you back to prison for the rest of your sentence to finish your six years. And so he straightened up. He managed to, he got a job, he was going to work, he was doing much better. And then, uh, about a week ago, he decided not to come back to the facility. He ran away, he, which, is, which is essentially escaping from prison. You know, we are technically still incarcerated. And he committed another robbery while he was out, or at least he's suspected of committing another robbery. And so now when they do catch him, he will pick up. He's, he's still going to have to do his six years that he's still serving. He's going to get a new escape charge. That'll be another 12. And he's going to get a new robbery charge. That'll be another 12. Jeez. And Colorado tends to run these things concurrent. So he'll probably end up doing 12 total. But he'll do day for day, meaning he will not be getting good time because he's in escape. And what that means is that he's probably going to do about 10 years on his sentence before he gets out again, before they give him another chance to, to get out. And the heartbreaking part of this is that he adjusted to prison life. He got out, was unable to adjust back to civilian life, but intellectually realized, hey, if I want to stay out, I have to make this adjustment. I have to change. So he tried. He got a job. He tried to start following the rules, but it overwhelmed him. He was not able to do it. And so he you know, decided to run away and commit more crimes. And it's basically, he got a case of the fuckets, is what we call it. Yeah. I got a case of the fuckets, and off I went. Wow. And so he will spend from the age of 25 to 35 in prison. So in his life, he's going to go from 19 to 35 with a total of about six months on the outside. Ugh. And think about that. When you were 19, you know, you were at uh, University of Science and Arts in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. When you were 35, you were, I don't know if you were getting married, but you were probably on the verge of getting married and having a child. So basically your entire youthful adult life, you know, all the, all the parts before you got arthritis <laughs> and it started, you know, successful sexual intercourse started becoming, you know, a, a, an achievement rather than a, a given. That entire period of your life, the fun part, he's has, he is going to spend in an 8 by 10 cell with a metal toilet, getting a letter from his mom, you know, once a month, eating institutional food, working in a laundry, getting more facial tattoos, hanging out with his gang. When he gets out, his chances of reintegration into society I have a, a personal, deeply held moral belief that there's no such thing as an unredeemable person. There's always a chance. There's always a, you know. I liked the Darth Vader arc in the original Star Wars movies. Let's just say that. Right, right. But intellectually, I, I he's not going to make it. He, he's going to get out at 35. He's going to go, he's probably going to go out and, you know, do another robbery and, and go back to prison for another 20 and, and, and repeat, rinse, repeat until he's either 60 and he's just so old that he can't live that life anymore and he just becomes a broken person and he'll be you know, out of prison but homeless living under a bridge or he'll die in prison, one or the other, if he does something bad enough to... It's an entire human life. Yeah. Because he didn't have the ability to adjust. I'm a fairly smart guy. I have a lot of resources on the outside. I have friends, I have family, I have loved ones. 
it's taken me three three go rounds to hopefully get my head on straight and not and not return to institutional life. Please God. Because you, so you robbed the bank. You you did your short stretch. Then you robbed again. After, I, what was the time between the two? Two about two years. About two years. Yes, we because that's where you first did some work with me on on my books. Right. And, and uh, then I and you you had some wonderful things start to happen in your personal life, which I don't want to go into. You can, of course. Well, that was actually that was a little bit later. Oh, that was because I, I did I did go back again. I, I've. I have been incarcerated three times: once in jail, twice in prison. Okay. Uh, okay. About a year and a half ago, I sold drugs to an undercover police officer, and I went to prison for another year. Right. Had I not been on parole, I wouldn't have gone to prison for that. It would have been a misdemeanor. It would have been a risk lap scenario. Well, it wouldn't have been a misdemeanor, but they wouldn't have. Pro- they don't generally prosecute. You sold a gram to somebody. Yeah. This room in the prisons for those people. They. they People in prisons on drug charges, generally, if, if they're white, yeah. I'm just going to go ahead and liberal here for a minute, are there because they did a lot of drug charges. Yeah. This I was, was just uh, Well, this was, just, this was just stacked on other things you had done, and they, they were like, okay, you're... So I had, I basically, I went to prison for violating my parole rather than for the actual thing that I did that violated my parole, which may be a distinction without a difference, but... Did you... Uh, uh, do have you always had an issue with substances, or did this is this something that came on later in life due to circumstances and it became a coping mechanism? If you don't mind me asking, it's been no. I, I have no secrets, Alex. You can ask my credit card number, and it'll tell you. And then I'll laugh because good luck getting anything out of it. <laughs> um, the the big answer to your question is that I've had a lifelong substance abuse problem. Substance abuse from the age of about. I will say 21 became a coping mechanism. Uh, it was a largely functional coping mechanism until my late 40s when my drug of choice went from, when I was young it was alcohol, when I was in my 30s it was marijuana, and then once I hit 45 or so it became methamphetamine, Wow. which as many people will be able to tell you, that's a whole different ballgame. Uh, that's that's going from, I played t-ball, and then I played extra t-ball, and then I went to Major League Baseball and was on the Yankees. Man. It's, it's a big jump. And whereas as a drinker, I was pretty functional, and as a occasional pothead, I was pretty functional. As a meth user, really super not functional. I mean, is there really any way to be functional in meth? There are people who are more functional than others. I have known people who have gone many, many years and who don't end up in prison. Um, they're, I wouldn't say that they're you know successful in life. I wouldn't say that they're necessarily happy. But they're at least, if they're doing crimes to support their habit, they're minor crimes that don't normally get you into much trouble. Gotcha. So this all came to a head... And you, you, you went back in, and yes. the, I assume they were not so nice to you. Uh, the system was, was the system starting to look at you askance at this point, do you think? Where it's like, no, I'm still, I'm still told by case managers and such that, gosh, you really don't belong here. You're not 
one of these things is not like the other. Um, and the fact that my crimes have decreased in severity also argues, you know, in the, in favor of them thinking that maybe I'm just screwing up rather than being a quote bad guy unquote. Um, you know, going from usually the the progression is you sell some drugs and you sell a lot of drugs, uh, then you rob a bunch of people while selling drugs, then you shoot someone. You know, my progression went: I robbed some people and then I sold some drugs. Right. So yeah. hopefully, my next crime will be jaywalking. <laughs> well, with that bicycle of yours, you may. I will get a municipal ticket and uh, pay the two hundred dollars and about my business so are you where where you know we can i we could of course go for hours and we've gone along here time but so we're just to kind of uh, broaden the the view again on this the more macro where are you now then living in the halfway house i will be at the halfway house for another two or three months i would think uh, it's going to depend on actually me being able to find a place to live but i will be eligible to leave the halfway house in two or three months and at that point, will you still be on? on and, at that point, I will be on parole for about one more year. And that means regular visitation or discussions right. with the parole office. Is that in person every time? Yes. Uh, generally speaking, I, I don't know exactly how often because there's a, a wide range the way they handle it. But I could have an appointment every two weeks or an appointment every year. It really depends on how severe they decide my risk of reoffending is. Yeah. Most likely it'll be once a month where I go to the parole office, see my parole officer. I'll have a couple of urine tests a month probably because I had a drug crime um, to make sure that I'm not using. And if I'm behaving myself and not getting high, then I'll quickly proceed off parole. And I think uh, it's a little bit complicated. I don't want to bore your audience with it, but effective March of next year is when my year of parole would start. And the year will actually be up in about nine months. So basically, at the end of 2019, I will be off parole. God yeah. willing, and the freak don't rise, and I don't go rob another bank. Which I'm sure you won't. And you've, uh, are, are you in a program, too, to help with your substance issues, if I may ask? Is, is there something that's helping you cope with that? How long do you have, buddy? Um, <laughs> let's say that the the in Colorado the halfway house uh, environment is not super conducive to recovery. There are classes. I'm in a class. I go to the class once a week. So far, of the four classes I've had, we've spent three of them watching the movie Twenty Eight Days with Sandra Bullock, excellent actress and very attractive woman. Yeah. Um, which is about recovery, so in that sense, it's kind of good, I guess. I guess. Uh, but they don't do much for you, no. Do you, I mean, do you have to avoid triggers? Um, I, I know in your book you talk about when you get out from jail, avoid people who are going to help you reoffend. You know, if you're if you have a yes. substance problem, you obviously don't go sit around a bar. You don't hang around with heavy drinkers and people who want to use in front of you. You the, those people are off limits, right? That's that's one thing. Yes. That is that is a critical thing. Uh, having what we call pro-social friends, you know, a network of sober people that you hang out with and spend time with who are doing positive and productive things is incredibly important. You know, it's funny. It's when a, I got out last time, mm -hmm. 
there was a, a young woman who used to sell me drugs. She has since gotten her life back on track. And when I got out, I took her to lunch one day. And we just and we were both very awkward. And like, this is what regular people do, isn't it? It's like yes, it's like we have lunch and we talk about things. It's like we're not going to get hot. It's like no, we don't do that anymore. It's like okay, so we're going to eat these fries and this burger and talk, and then we'll go home. Like, yes, that's that's what we're going to do. <laughs> it's like acting out a kabuki play of this is what sober. This people is what sober people do. Well, let me ask you this then. You know, and this has given me some thought about you that I hadn't thought previously is do you want to edit work where the character has some drinking issues? Was that a trigger oh, I, for you? Is that a problem? No, 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 not at all. Not at all. The, uh, I'll tell you the huge trigger in my life and a lot of addicts will tell you the same. I go to narcotics anonymous once, once or twice a week and that's an enormous trigger. Every time I go to an NA meeting, I come out wanting to go get high because people tell stories about getting high. Is that why? And not, ex not exactly. Um, just the the, I mean it's it's critically important to do that recovery work, and I haven't gone gone out and gotten high, so it's not a trigger that can't be you know avoided, and I think I'm I'm told that it does diminish over time and it becomes less and less, like that. But what it does is it reminds you of the lifestyle you used to have, right? Um, which in some ways was super fun. Okay, parents listening at home, cover your children's ears. <laughs> Drugs are a lot of fun. Okay, you can uncover them now. When you stop, you you quickly you know you remember when you're reminded, like wow. It used to be that, you know, I would meet this, you know, attractive woman like this woman who's you know, telling her story, and you know we would go get a motel room and have crazy sex for three days while getting super super hot, and we don't do that anymore. But I remember doing that, and it was super fun. You know, the, the prison part was not fun. Right. Being awake at four in the morning, you know, puking was not fun. But there are lots of aspects of that lifestyle which are very attractive. Sure. Which shockingly is why people do it. Yeah, I was going to say. Drugs, they're terrible. Yeah. Well, people aren't putting a gun to your head making you do it. There's a reason you do it. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why why anybody does Yeah, I mean, uh, for example, I, I enjoy cocktail. Well, why? Because it makes me feel good. Uh, sure. make, relaxes me. Makes me comfortable. Oh. I would love sometime to get you back on the show and talk a little bit more. Maybe by the time we, we get around to my grandfather's book, uh, which you've edited, uh, we can talk a little again if you're interested. Is there, you know, is there, is there, this is one last kind of creative question around this though. Has this experience, and I understand it's not over. You're, you are still in this experience. You are still recovering. You are not just from substance, but you're recovering from your brush with, outlawry or whatever you want to call it, uh, but you're trying mm -hmm. to reintegrate into uh, air quotes, you know, civil society, right? Mm -hmm. Has this affected the way um, you look at, at the work, at writing, at editing? Has it, has it affected the way you approach? Cause you said you had this, this fast food meal with with a friend who you used to get high with and you don't do that anymore. You, you're looking at life through a whole different lens. Do you look at the work through a different lens based on these experiences? Well, it's a good question. A great deal of the work I do is pretty, pretty dry and pedestrian. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my, my most recent projects have been 
writing articles about how marketing consultants can help your small business, mm-hmm. writing a user guide for ventless ethanol fireplaces, uh, and I'm getting ready to start work on a project today where I'll be writing an article about uh, invest, institutional investing in farmland. So the, the connection to, you know, the drug-fueled wild lifestyle is there's not a great deal of overlap. And, and possibly part of, you know, I, I do tend to have a thrill-seeking personality, and so it may be that the lack of excitement in a lot of the work that I do I found my work satisfying, but it's not usually exciting. Right. There, there could be some some correlation there. Hmm. On the other hand, I'm I'm doing another. I've just finished another project, writing a business plan for a recovery center in Utah. Oh. Where they have a program of, of helping uh, helping people who are leaving recovery care with supports and mentoring. Very very exciting project, really. And I really did put my heart and soul into that. And I think I put a lot more of myself into it than I would have had it been just a normal uh, assignment. Sure. Sure. Well, that, that, that makes sense. And I, I guess if you had had that same work and not done it, that, that would be maybe dismaying, you know, but it, it's, yes, it, that's good. Well, you know, it's, I, let, I'm, let me just say one thing. Sure. I think that the main, the main thing I've gotten from the whole experience, which as you say, isn't over yet, but, Ten years ago, I would have had intellectual sympathy for people caught in the criminal justice system and the way it works. And you know, and I, w- I would read things about you know young black men getting shot by the police, and, and I would think, oh, that's terribly sad. And then I would turn the page and you know and see what the baseball scores were because that would be much more relevant to my life. Um, and I'll say this as a Christian, I have compassion for people that I did not have before this happened. And not because I was a monstrous person before, you know, bereft of all care and feeling, but simply because I hadn't had the experience to have commonality. You know, we, we can only really understand the things that we understand. And until you live it, you don't understand it. And that has changed for me. That has been a uh, an expansion of my heart. And yet again, it, had you not said such a beautiful thing, that might have been dismaying to me. Um, but I can see why it would be very easy to close your heart after all that you've been through. But, you know, I've always, I, there's a reason you and I have kept in touch. And I mean, we don't, I haven't seen you in this, I haven't been in the same room with you in decades, but we have always kept in touch through social media. And we were, I love working with you. I respect you so tremendously, but I've, I can still remember back 1985 when I met you just thinking I like that guy that's a good guy yes he can be annoying although when we did the underground newspaper together in high school I could oh my lord do you remember the Eagles edition oh you just set the you just set the way back machine yeah man I cannot think of a a better partner in crime I mean you were so up for it and getting hauled into the principal's office and all that but it was fun such fun (laughs) and you're Good times. You know, listen, for what it's worth, I think you're a hell of a guy. And I think that you have everything it takes to live your life the way you, you know, you want to live it. And I'm pulling for you, my brother. Pulling for you. I appreciate that, I appreciate that very much. If you would uh, come to a reunion every once in a while. Are you so going to? Really? Are you serious? Well, uh-huh. uh, I went to the 10-year and uh, 
I skipped the others, but are you going to go, if you go to a, tell you what, if there's another one and you're going to go to it, let me know and uh, I'll work well, it out. You uh, know, and in a couple of years when I'm allowed to leave the state, you're, you're a six hour bus ride away. It's not like I can't get over there and come say hi. Well, there you go. Or I can definitely come say hello to you once you're, you're out of your uh, current digs and we can say hello that way. And uh, that'd be great. The rules of Colorado Springs, you don't want to do that. <laughs> okay. They would well, uh, feather you at the border. They, <laughs> say MAGA you'd be like what get him <laughs> we've been talking to my good friend and my editor Robert Hayes author of stay out of prison a practical guide to avoiding incarceration but but again most importantly to me my dear friend who I have known for oh, oh god 30 plus years and 35 35 thanks yeah, he's always better at math. way better at math than me and uh we're going to continue to work together. And, and you know what? I suspect he'll be back on this show because I'd love to have Robert back when we talk about um, Big Cabin and uh, other dispatches from the wait. West. Yes. And, and yeah. So, and Robert, if they want to get a hold of you, if they need somebody to do copywriting, editing, anything like that, how's the best way to get a hold of you? Best way to get a hold of me is to send me an email. My email address is D O C R O C K E T. That's DocRocket at gmail.com. Yeah, and, you know, he's uh, always up for uh, for spirited banter as well, I'm sure. Robert, thanks so much for being on Mysterious Goings-On. We'll, uh, we'll uh, Thank you cir circle back around to you soon, okay? I can't wait. Right. Thanks again, Alex. You're welcome so much. Until next time, keep reading. It's a great time to get a great deal on a new car when you get approved for an auto loan from PenFed. Our powered by true car rates are as low as 1.39% APR on new vehicles. Finance for a longer term to lower your monthly bill. Plus, take up to 60 days to schedule your first payment. Join PenFed and together we'll keep you moving forward. Anyone can apply. Visit PenFed.org auto or call 1-800-247-5626. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. From regular expenses to occasional splurges, there's a lot to buy. Why not get cash back every time you spend? With the PenFed Power Cash Rewards Card, you get cash back on every purchase. That's everywhere, every time you use it. You can even earn a $100 statement credit when you spend $1,500 in the first 90 days. Visit PenFed.org slash PowerCash to apply. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA.